Today is Tuesday in the Octave of Pentecost in the traditional Roman calendar, and it's the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima. And this is Father John Zolzdorf with another podcast. Today we welcome as our guest the late great Pope John Paul II, who will speak to us from the pages of his encyclical Dominum et Vivificantem about the saving mission of the Holy Spirit. Also, we will hear briefly from Our Lady of Fatima through one of the visions of the children who were graced in 1917 with the apparitions. Dominum et vivificantem, the Lord and giver of life, is the name of the fifth encyclical written by Pope John Paul II. It was promulgated on the 18th of May in 1986, so many years ago. It is a theological examination of the role of the Holy Spirit as it pertains to the modern world and the Church, and the use of spiritual prayer to renew one's spiritual life. Now, a constant theme in this encyclical is Jesus' own saying in John sixteen seven that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Uh, as we read in the Gospel, he will convince the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. Now, after a propedeutic section about the three persons of the Trinity, uh, John Paul then, in paragraph 27, explains each of these terms, uh, convince sin, righteousness, and justice, as a foundation for the second part of the encyclical. And then the Holy Father speaks of the day of Pentecost itself, in light of the Holy Spirit's saving mission to convince the world concerning sin, especially in light of conversion of sinners and the remission of sins. And at this point, the Holy Father then turns to the beginning of creation and to the Spirit moving on the waters and man's first disobedience in order to speak about the mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of iniquity. 
Now, he needs to do this in order to be able to speak about the meaning of human suffering and eventually its redemptive qualities. This, you know, this mysterium iniquitatis was something that was very important uh, during the Jubilee year for the Holy Father, uh, John Paul II, and he would return to it uh, every once in a while. And I think it's a very useful hermeneutic for our reading events of our lives and events of the world. A human hermeneutic is kind of like a lens, a lens through which we can look at and examine a thing. Uh, we could also describe it maybe as a hook, like a hook. I don't know, maybe some of you growing up in the United States remember uh, grade school or old school rooms. They used to have a cloakroom with lots of hooks where all the children would, would put hang their, their coats or their cloaks as they came into school. Or maybe you'll go into a, a, a tool shop or a, a, a man's garage and you can see hooks on the wall for his tools. Maybe he's even painted the shape of the tool so you know exactly what is supposed to go where. See, this is sort of like a hermeneutic, you see, because it helps you keep your thoughts organized and see them in a certain way. So think about it as hooks to hang coats or hats or tools or a lens through which you can see a question. And this mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of iniquity, it's really at the heart of our daily struggle, isn't it? Uh, I, you know, think about how St. Augustine calls death our daily winter, right? Uh, death is one of the most dramatic and harrowing results of the mystery of iniquity, the fall of man, or turning away from, from God and his will. And so, in a sense, even the cross and the resurrection of the Lord, what they do is they bring this mystery of iniquity and the mystery of our death, for example, into clearer focus. Uh, you know, after all, even though Christ rose from the dead, we still have to die, don't we? Isn't that a great mystery? It's part of the mystery of iniquity, that the that the that the terrible wounds of sin and iniquity have continued, even though. Christ came into the world in his saving mission, even though the Holy Spirit descended on the church. There's still the mystery of iniquity. So as our in our lives as Catholics, in the sacraments and in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at baptism and our confirmation, the invocation of the Holy Spirit before the consecration at Mass, the invocation of the Holy Spirit when priests are ordained, and all these other different moments in our lives as Catholics. Uh, these different these different aspects or dimensions of our lives uh, in the sacraments allow us to see the world and our lives through the mystery of iniquity and even through the mystery of iniquity to the great mysterium the one who is entirely transcendent the one who is the invisible god you know, think about how the second person of the trinity the Son is the perfect invisible image of the invisible God. And then in the Incarnation, he becomes the perfect visible image of the invisible God. And he comes into the world to reveal us more fully to ourselves and how we can look through his wounds, as Richard of St. Victor put it, we can gaze through his wounds at the invisible wound of love. 
but I am really digressing here. Let's get back to Dominum et Vivificantem. Now, what happens in this encyclical is that eventually Pope John Paul gets into a discussion of sin against the Holy Spirit. Sometimes uh, you may have heard this as being called the unforgivable sin, right? Well, what does that mean? A lot of people have questions about this, and the Holy Father can help us out with this. Uh, especially in the section of his encyclical Dominum et Vivicantem, beginning with paragraph 46. Uh, He discusses the radical refusal of the Holy Spirit's mission to convince concerning sin. Remember that convince concerning sin is a constant theme in the whole encyclical. And so, in other words, what he's doing is he, he explains how when someone refuses to see his state of separation and then refuses forgiveness, and reconciliation, he cannot be forgiven. And this is what is meant by blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not so much talking badly about the Holy Spirit or even to the Holy Spirit, which, even though that those are terrible sins, they are forgivable. The sort of blasphemy that we're dealing with here goes far, far deeper. It goes down and takes us down if we fall into it even as deep as the everlasting grave of hell. So we should pay very close attention to, um, to what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is in our understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, as you listen to the section, and I'm going to read the section about sin against the Holy Spirit from Dominum et Vivi Contem, beginning with paragraph 46, uh, pay attention to... Pay attention to the Holy Father's words about closing ourselves up, to close oneself up. And I'll get back to that when we come back to my comments after this section. Against the background of what has been said so far, certain other words of Jesus, shocking and disturbing ones, become easier to understand. We might call them the words of unforgiveness. They are reported for us by the synoptics in connection with a particular sin which is called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is how they are reported in their three versions. Matthew, quote, Whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Mark, All sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Luke, Every one who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Close quote. Why is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit unforgivable? How should this blasphemy be understood? St. Thomas Aquinas replies that it is a question of a sin that is 
unforgivable by its very nature, insofar as it excludes the elements through which the forgiveness of sin takes place. According to such an exegesis, blasphemy does not properly consist in offending against the Holy Spirit in words. It consists, rather, in the refusal to accept the salvation which God offers to man through the Holy Spirit, working through the power of the cross. If man rejects the convincing concerning sin which comes from the Holy Spirit and which has the power to save, he also rejects the coming of the Counselor, that coming which was accomplished in the Paschal Mystery, in union with the redemptive power of Christ's blood, the blood which purifies the conscience from dead works. We know that the result of such a purification is the forgiveness of sins. Therefore, whoever rejects the Spirit and the blood remains in dead works, in sin. And the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit consists precisely in the radical refusal to accept this forgiveness, of which he is the intimate giver, and which presupposes the genuine conversion which he brings about in the conscience. If Jesus says that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven either in this life or in the next, it is because this non-forgiveness is linked, as to its cause, to a non-repentance, in other words, to the radical refusal to be converted. This means the refusal to come to the sources of redemption, which nevertheless remain always open in the economy of salvation, in which the mission of the Holy Spirit is accomplished. The Spirit has infinite power to draw from these sources. He will take what is mine, Jesus said. In this way, he brings to completion in human souls the work of the redemption accomplished by Christ and distributes its fruits. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then, is the sin committed by the person who claims to have a right to persist in evil in any sin at all, and who thus rejects redemption. One closes one's self up in sin, thus making impossible one's conversion, and consequently the remission of sins, which one considers not essential or not important for one's life. This is a state of spiritual ruin, because blasphemy against the Holy Spirit does not allow one to escape from one's self-imposed imprisonment, and open oneself to the divine sources of the purification of consciences and the remission of sins. The action of the Spirit of Truth, which works toward salvific convincing concerning sin, encounters in a person, in this condition, an interior resistance, as it were an impenetrability of conscience a state of mind which could be described as fixed by reason of a free choice. This is what sacred scripture usually calls hardness of heart. In our own time, this attitude of mind and heart is perhaps reflected in the loss of the sense of sin, to which the apostolic exhortation Reconciliatio et Penitentia devotes many pages. Pope Pius XII had already declared that the sin of the century is the loss of the sense of sin, and this loss goes hand in hand with the loss of the sense of God. In the exhortation just mentioned, we read, quote, 
In fact, God is the origin and supreme end of man, and a man carries in himself a divine seed. Hence it is the reality of God that reveals and illustrates the mystery of man. It is therefore vain to hope that there will take root a sense of sin against man and against human values, if there is no sense of offense against God, namely the true sense of sin. Hence the Church constantly implores from God the grace that integrity of human consciences will not be lost, that their healthy sensitivity with regard to good and evil will not be blunted. This integrity and sensitivity are profoundly linked to the intimate action of the Spirit of Truth. In this light the exhortations of St. Paul assume a particular eloquence. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But above all, the Church constantly implores with the greatest fervor that there will be no increase in the world of the sin that the Gospel calls blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Rather, she prays that it will decrease in human souls, and consequently in the forms and structures of society itself, and that it will make room for that openness of conscience necessary for the saving action of the Holy Spirit. The Church prays that the dangerous sin against the Spirit will give way to a holy readiness to accept his mission as the Counselor when he comes to convince the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. In his farewell discourse, Jesus linked these three areas of convincing as elements of the mission of the paraclete, sin, righteousness, and judgment. They mark out the area of that mysterium pietatis that in human history is opposed to sin, to the mystery of iniquity. On the one hand, as St. Augustine says, there is love of self to the point of contempt of God. On the other, love of God to the point of contempt of self. The Church constantly lifts up her prayer and renders her service in order that the history of consciences and the history of societies in the great human family will not descend toward the pole of sin by rejection of God's commandments to the point of contempt of God, but rather will rise toward the love in which the Spirit that gives life is revealed. Those who let themselves be convinced concerning sin by the Holy Spirit also allow themselves to be convinced concerning righteousness and judgment. The Spirit of Truth who helps human beings, human consciences, to know the truth concerning sin, at the same time enables them to know the truth about that righteousness which entered human history in Jesus Christ. In this way, those who are convinced concerning sin, and who are converted through the action of the Counselor, are, in a sense, led out of the range of the judgment, that judgment by which the ruler of this world is judged. In the depths of its divine human mystery, conversion means the breaking of every fetter by which sin binds a man to the whole of the mystery of iniquity. Those who are converted, therefore, are led by the Holy Spirit out of the range of the judgment, 
and introduced into that righteousness which is in Christ Jesus, as and is in him precisely because he receives it from the Father, as a reflection of the holiness of the Trinity. This is the righteousness of the gospel and of the redemption, the righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount and of the Cross, which effects the purifying of the conscience through the blood of the Lamb. It is the righteousness which the Father gives to the Son and to all those united with him in truth and in love. In this righteousness, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, who convinces the world concerning sin, reveals himself and makes himself present in man as the Spirit of eternal life. That was Pope John Paul II, servant of God, on the salvific role of the Holy Spirit in his encyclical Dominum et Vivificantem. The title of the encyclical, of course, is taken from the words of the Creed, from the Symbolum Niceno Constantinopolitanum, which we recite rather often in the older form of Mass, and on Sundays and great feast days in the newer form. Now, uh, there's a, a point at which John Paul II uses the phrase mysterium pietatis. I talked at the beginning about the mysterium iniquitatis, but this is mysterium pietatis. Well, what does this mean? Well, it's being used as a counterbalance, in a sense, to the mysterium iniquitatis, the mystery of iniquity. Now, on the one hand, we have the fall of man and the evil entering into the world, the mystery of iniquity that informs a great deal of our, of our human experience. And on the other hand, we have the second Adam who comes into the world, Christ the Lord, to repair the gulf of iniquity that man opened up between himself and God. Now, Latin pietas is hard to get into English and make it sound right. It's often translated as piety. But that can be hard to understand. Pietas is really more along the lines of dutifulness. But even that is a little bit deceptive. We have to break it down and make distinctions about the one to whom we are applying the word or concept piety. Uh, when we consider man, pietas is dutifulness. Uh, toward God or toward his neighbor or whatever, but especially in this context, it's giving God what is his due, which is the essence of piety, properly understood. But pietas is also a quality of God, 
But in this case, we don't think so much of of what God owes us or what he's duty-bound to give us because he owes us nothing. Rather, we think in terms of God, we think of pietas as his mercy. God is merciful. For us, it is a duty to show pietas, but for God, it's a free gift to show the pietas, which is mercy. Now, think of the heraldic image or an image we often see in religious art, maybe in vestments or in paintings, or maybe in the walls of a church or in a stained glass window of a pelican in a nest with her chicks underneath her, and the pelican with her long, sharp beak is piercing her own breast and making her breast bleed so that her starving chicks can feed on her own blood. Now, this symbol in heraldry is called a pelican in her piety, in other words, in her pietas. And this is a very good symbol of bringing together both our own dutifulness as a creature. We have a sense of duty. We have that which we really ought to give because of our state in life, because of our position, because of the fact that we're human beings. But it also shows what God does in piety. It's the free gift. It's the mercy, even even to, to one's own death, you see, the self-giving. So at the the heart of the Mysterium Pietatis is God's own self-giving and then our own self-giving in return, whether it's towards God or whether it's our neighbor. That's the essence of dutifulness in the sense of piety properly understood. And so we see how Christ is perfect gift of self, uh, first in his self-emptying and then in his being pierced so that we could be saved by his blood, it shows that perfect counterbalance to the Mysterium Iniquitatis. And in fact, the Mysterium Iniquitatis, which remains in the world, even though he died and rose again, the Mysterium Iniquitatis is given a different sense. We understand it in a different way. In a certain way, all that comes from the mystery of iniquity, including human suffering, then takes on different meaning because of the Mysterium Pietatis. Mysterium which embraces God's mercy and our own proper response in the midst of this fallen world and in, in the depths of our own deep need. Now, a word about that closing in on oneself that I, I warned you about before we started. And I'm going to, what I'm going to do here is go out on a limb a little bit. I'm going to make a liturgical connection. And of course, I'm running the risk of pushing the image a little too far. But uh, let's consider this closing in on oneself connected with the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, that the Holy Father was describing in Dominum et Vivivicantum. Uh, let's use it as an interpretive key for what Papa Ratzinger has taught about the position of the priest and the congregation in relation to the altar and the cross during Holy Mass. Now, am I going out on a limb? Well, let's see. Now, Pope Benedict took up what you know, great liturgical scholars such as Klaus Gamber demonstrated in his work, namely that turning to the liturgical East, this is what we call ad orientem celebration of Mass, is a way of facing uh, toward the Lord with eschatological hope. 
because we know he's going to return. Now, that word eschatological has to do with the end, right? The eschaton, the last things, right? Death, judgment, heaven, and hell, the returning of the Lord and our ultimate reward in heaven or judgment, which you know might separate us from God and put us in hell. But Christians, we turn to hope with hope toward the Lord, whom we know is going to come. And so the liturgical east is the direction from which we hope the Lord will come to us. We know the Lord is going to come. And so each mass which is celebrated with that orientation opens us up to the coming of the Lord in a manifest way. And that all these these things like the position that we have in relation to the altar and to the priest and where the cross is and all these see all these things have to influence us these outward manifestations the way we pray affects the way we believe right remember the phrase lex orandi lex credendi it, this is how i like to put it there's a reciprocal relationship between the what we believe and how we pray if we pray a certain way we will come to believe certain things at the same time as if we believe certain things then we then it changes the way we pray, lex orandi, lex credendi. So every Mass that is oriented toward the Lord who is coming in that manifest way is going to help shape our self-perception, not only as individuals, but also as a praying congregation, but also as a whole church. Now remember in Gaudium et Spes, that document on the church in the modern world. There's a paragraph, very important paragraph, number 22, which the young bishop, Karl Wojtyla, future Pope John Paul II, helped to write. And the paragraph 22 of Gaudium Space says that the Lord came into the world to save man, but also to reveal man more fully to himself. That's one of the things that the Lord does in coming into the world. The coming of the Lord teaches us who we are in a way that goes beyond our own abilities. And so the coming of the Lord at Holy Mass also teaches us who we are as individuals and also as a collective. Just as his coming at the end of the world is going to definitively teach us who we are, it's going to definitively reveal us more fully to ourselves. All things will be laid bare. So in this sense... There, the role of the Holy Spirit is the same, right? The Holy Spirit has the role of convincing the world concerning sin and righteousness, but also uh, convincing us uh, concerning who we are in, in justice. But this way of closing in on ourselves is a component of the rejection of the Holy Spirit's role in forgiveness and redemption. Okay, so now let's move back to what Pope Benedict has been teaching about Holy Mass, arranged in such a manner that the, when the people and the priest face each other over the altar in what we call versus populum celebration, rather than being oriented to the coming of the Lord, where we're facing all together, facing in the same direction toward the liturgical east in ad orientum celebration, that versus populum, the priest and people facing each other over the altar, as Pope Benedict describes in his liturgical writings, actually closes us in on ourselves in a closed circle. We're not opened outward with eschatological hope. We're closed inward on ourselves in a closed circle. 
Now, Papa Ratzinger suggests that one day to begin breaking down this self-enclosed circle is by putting the cross at the center, which is why he has moved the cross to the center and the front of altars when he says Mass publicly. Now, far superior to this, and this is something that Papa Ratzinger actually writes himself, is ad orientem worship. But the cross in the center is at least a start. It's an opening outward from ourselves to the God who saves us and teaches us more fully who we are, even as a result of the mysterium pietatis and the mysterium iniquitatis. Today is the 13th of May. It's the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima. And as you know, our Blessed Mother appeared to three peasant children in the Portuguese countryside on the 13th of the month for six consecutive months. She identified herself as the Lady of the Rosary. And at the end of the six months, through her intercession, God revealed what is called the miracle of the sun, which was seen by so many different people. Our Lady revealed some secrets to the children, together with visions. Now, the third secret has been a matter of real controversy, and even though the description of the third vision was revealed, some people maintain that there is more to this last secret than has actually been released. But, you know, what interests us right now, uh, especially in light of the reading that we had about the Holy Spirit's saving mission, and how it would be possible to reject salvation in what we call blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and in light of what the results of that rejection of the Holy Spirit would be, let's focus for this moment on the first secret, which the older of the children, uh, seers, Lucia, described in her memoir in 1942. Our Lady showed us a great sea of fire which seemed to be under the earth. Plunged in this fire were demons and souls in human form, like transparent burning embers, all blackened or burnished bronze, floating about in the conflagration, now raised into the air by the flames that issued from within themselves, together with great clouds of smoke now falling back on every side like sparks in a huge fire, 
without weight or equilibrium, amid the shrieks and groans of pain and despair which horrified us and made us tremble with fear. The demons could be distinguished by their terrifying and repulsive likeness to frightful and unknown animals, all black and transparent. This vision lasted but an instant. How can we ever be grateful enough to our kind Heavenly Mother, who has already prepared us by promising in the first apparition to take us to heaven? Otherwise, I think we would have died of fear and terror. This is a terribly sobering vision, and Holy Church has given approval to the apparitions of Our Lady in Fatima, and so we must, of course, remember that all these visions, even in the context of an approved apparition, are really in the sphere of private revelation. Now, all public revelation was closed with the death of the last apostle, St. John. And so Catholics aren't bound, really strictly bound in conscience, to accept private revelations because they aren't part of the depositum fidei, the deposit of faith. But nevertheless... Holy Church has approved the Fatima apparitions, and it would be incredibly imprudent to discount them in any way. Now, Catholics are very strongly encouraged, and even expected, in a sense, to accept the apparitions which are approved, though we are not strictly bound in conscience to do so, as we are in the case, for example, of the content of the creed. Now, holy popes have encouraged us to accept these apparitions and the messages of Our Lady of Fatima, and Pope John Paul II accredited Our Lady's intercession for saving his life from an assassin's bullet on this very day on the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima in 1981. Now these visions are worthy of belief, and we discount them at our peril. Isn't it true that sometimes we like to refuse what frightens us, especially when it requires from us a deep conversion? That's all for today on this Tuesday in the Octave of Pentecost. I hope you will visit the blog and tell your friends about it, and also these audio projects, and tell them to visit WDTPRS.com. That's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra.com. What does the prayer really say? So, so long from Father Z, and until next time, please pray for me as I will for you.